Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church Podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and His church, grow in faith and understanding of God's Word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Well, good morning. I'm John Oliver. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Rosemont, and I'm excited to continue in our series, The Long-Awaited One, as we are leading up to Easter following from Christmas, just through the life of Christ, through the Gospels. And so it's a, it's a joy to be with you and to bring God's Word. You know, there are some funny things that we believe in life. Funny things that we believed as kids that we now tell our kids or tell our grandkids. Things like, you can't swim right after you eat. You might get a stomach ache. Or don't swallow the watermelon seed because it may grow a watermelon. Or don't drink coffee, it'll stunt your growth. My grandfather gave me coffee at three, so I have disproved the theory. Or I'm very thankful that it worked. I don't know. But... Um, You know, we have different ones that we believe. The one that I'm trying to tell my own daughter right now, as she's just started chewing gum, like, don't swallow it or it's going to stay there, you know. But there are things that we believe like that that are humorous, but there are also things that throughout our history we've chosen to believe that are dangerous, things that are harmful. So what could those things be? Well... If you and I today had a fever, we would go to the medicine cabinet and we would get Tylenol to break the fever. What if you were born just a few hundred years ago right here in America? What would you do? It was an ancient Mayan practice that early on doctors in America adhered to, and December 14th, 1799, A 67-year-old man, 30 months into his retirement, had been riding all day over his property. He'd been inspecting the work that had been going on on horseback, and it was sleeting, snowing with freezing rain. His wife let him know he was late for dinner, so like any man would, he hurried home, and he didn't waste time drying off. He sat at dinner freezing cold. Throat started to itch, and he put himself to bed, and he awoke at 2 a.m., clutching his throat and full of fever. So his wife contacted his physician, Dr. James Crake, and he had been President George Washington's doctor for 40 years. He was an expert in his field. He took care of the president, and that old Mayan thought that they practiced was, we'll bleed it out of him. And so for 12 hours, Dr. James Craig and colleagues kept bleeding more and more out of President Washington, convinced that they were healing him, convinced that they were doing the very best they could to give him a chance at recovery and life. And we now know They bled him to death. Yet for years, in medical journals, they said he suffered 
from not being able to breathe, his throat swallowed up. So for years, medical professionals still believed they had done the right thing. This morning, we're going to encounter a man in Scripture that I believe is very much like Dr. Craig. He's an expert in his field, and he's a man that Jesus came to know very well. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, go ahead and turn to John chapter 2. should be on page 887 if you are... Not if you didn't bring your Bible and you see one of those in front of you, should be 887. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, please take that one as our gift to you. Now, some of you will know the man Nicodemus because you've watched a television show called The Chosen. Maybe it has popped into your mind. I, I, I know that. I know this interaction. I know him. Well, I, I want to encourage you this morning. If that's you, if you thought when I said Nicodemus, I've seen it, I want you to just do your very best to take it and move it out of your mind because I can't speak to the entirety of the show. I've never seen it, but I've seen that scene, and it is scripturally inaccurate. And so just do your best to remove that from your brain and let the text speak to you this morning. Because I believe what we see play out here in the Gospel of John, John does an incredible job under the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he's writing this thing out to just to provide context for what it is for the God-man, Jesus Christ, to enter into this world as God in the flesh in the form of a baby. It's just an incredible job. And what we see is John begins to write in John 1 about this tension that the light had come into the world, but we loved the darkness rather than the light. And there's this narrative we see pushed all throughout the book. When we get to chapter two, we see Jesus attending a wedding in Cana. And he performs the first miracle that's recorded there in turning the water into wine. When we get to verse 13, we see there's a, sh- a scene shift. We, we are now in the middle of Passover week. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and he has come to the temple of God. And we would expect to find people there worshiping. That's not what Jesus finds. What Jesus finds instead is the people of God have turned the temple of God into a marketplace where they're exchanging money and goods and oxen. And so Jesus, righteously angry, begins to flip these tables over and rush these people out of the temple because they are desecrating the temple of God. They are not doing what they ought to be doing here. And Jesus says to them, what you have torn down, I will rebuild in three days. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Now, if I'm a religious leader in Jerusalem at the time, I'm a little frustrated to see this man that is gaining popularity in the surrounding area, that has come into my town, that has come into my temple, and he has pushed people out for what I have allowed to take place. I wouldn't take kindly to it. And we know that the leadership there is frustrated, but even more than just a little frustrated at the actions of Christ, They are extremely frustrated that it hasn't ruined his popularity. John is very intentional about recording that here in the text. And so right at the end of chapter 2, we see that reflected. 
where he says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, John writes this gospel for a very specific reason, and we need to know that going into it, right? So he writes this to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, but also to strengthen those who already believe this. And so as we arrive in John 3 with the tension of light and darkness and God and Jesus' ministry here on the earth and all of that tension therein, this has taken place in the temple. And the leader of the Pharisees, the leader Nicodemus, it is his job to go speak to Jesus, to go figure out who it is this man is and what he's doing and what is he teaching and will it lead people astray. So we're going to be in chapter 3 and we're going to be in verses 1 through 15. Now I'm not covering verse 16 to 21. I think you'll understand why as we get there. So here's what God's word says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I've said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can then you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus is very intentional about pointing out this introduction of who Nicodemus is, because it's critical for us. He is a Pharisee. He's a ruler and a leader of the Jews. Now, if you're new to that word this morning, Pharisee, it is a religious leader who is strict in the application and practice of God's law. We find out later in John's gospel that he is a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a courtesy from the Romans to the Jews 
essentially think of it as a lower court where the Romans wouldn't have to deal with all of the nagging going on where people were not living out God's law. So the Sanhedrin were tasked with carrying this out. So we know Nicodemus to be a part of this. So what we can know, what we can infer from that is he is connected, he is well thought of, he's considered a picture of faithfulness. And this man comes to Jesus by night, verse two, and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And to this we see Jesus say, yes, tell everyone you know, go and tell everyone. That's what I would do. That's not what we see Jesus do. Jesus says, seems simple. And if we're not paying attention, we'll miss it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Now, the important thing for us to know is that it was Jewish thought and belief and teaching that unless you were living a life of wickedness or had walked away from the faith, your Jewishness was enough for you to enter the kingdom of God. And so we know by that and who Nicodemus is that this is a deeply held conviction and it is a teaching of him and all that he represents. And Jesus has just crushed it. Imagine, leader of the Jews, an example of faithfulness, wealthy, connected, a picture of uprightness, and by all accounts, thought to be a righteous man of God. And Jesus, in this moment, looks at him and says, you are lost. And it's not enough for you to be faithful to God's law. And it's not enough for you to affirm my works. If you are not born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. This truth applied to Nicodemus is a big deal. Because if there's not enough Nicodemus can do by his works to earn salvation, then there is no hope for me or you. And so to be born again, I'm gonna give you three observations this morning from the text of how we can know for certain that we are born again this morning. The first is that you are spirit-filled, not practicing faithless religion. You and I can live a life of faithfulness to God. We can go about our life sharing the gospel. We can go on mission trips. We can do nice things for people in need. We can be here every time the doors are open. We can read our Bible. We can check all the boxes. But if we are not born again, we will not see the kingdom of heaven. We see Nicodemus respond, say, how can, these, how can this be? For a man to be born once he is old, can he, can he enter into the womb a second time and be born? It's safe to say Nicodemus takes Jesus literally right here. 
Can you imagine if some of the sayings that we have were taken literally? Like, man, these gas prices really cost an arm and a leg, or lately, an arm and an egg, right? (laughs) Or, man, he really threw him under the bus, right? You and I, we know that those sayings mean, man, gas is painfully expensive right now. And we know that means, man, you really cast the blame on that guy quick. But let's say someone is here and they don't understand our context and they hear this. They hear a conversation with you and you're telling somebody at work, man, those gas prices cost an arm and a leg. And they walk away thinking, man, they're, people are arms and legs? Or they hear you say, man, somebody threw him under the bus. They're like, man, I want to take care of that guy. He threw people under the bus. Like, if people take things literally and they don't understand those sayings, they will be puzzled. And that's where we find Nicodemus in this moment. He's puzzled by the words of God. As believers in Jesus Christ, we understand what Jesus is saying here. But verse 12 gives us a great indication that Nicodemus was unable to understand what Jesus was saying, right? We know that to be reborn is not a rebirth. We know what it means. The old man, the old woman, the sinner must die to ourselves, believe upon Christ, and live for him by the power of the Spirit. That is to be reborn, right? The gospel of Jesus is not a gospel of self-improvement. It is a gospel of self Denial, And so Jesus continues in verse 5 saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I've said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, at first glance, this is equally, if not more, confusing. Matter of fact, throughout church history, people have pointed to this verse and argued about what it means. Some have pointed to this teaching of Jesus here with Nicodemus and said, it is baptism that saves you, but it is not consistent with Scripture, and it is not consistent with this conversation. What we know from the teachings of Scripture is by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, that is salvation. And so if that is not the interpretation here, then what is Jesus saying? And so we remember who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to a man familiar with the law. So where is this in the Old Testament? Well, we find it in the prophet Ezekiel's words in chapters 36 and 37, where Ezekiel is telling the people that they need to be renewed by God from their wickedness by water. And the Lord will put a new heart and a new spirit within them. It is language that Nicodemus should have understood. Ezekiel also speaks to a resurrection of a new people and a rebuilding of the temple. And if you go back to chapter two in the public discourse of Jesus in the temple, when he says to them, what you've torn down, I will rebuild in three days. 
And they too, unable to understand, take him literally. And their response, it took us 40 years to build this. You're going to do it in three days? Yeah, okay, hot shot. Again, Jesus isn't saying he's going to physically rebuild what had been destroyed. What he's saying is that their wickedness had marred the temple of God and that he would rebuild it. And this would happen by cleansing their wickedness and transforming their hearts and their minds through Christ. This is really an an invitation. This is the beginning of an invitation to Nicodemus to salvation. This man, this example of faithfulness, this man of uprightness, Jesus looks at him and he says, you need to be cleansed of your wickedness. You need a new heart and a new spirit from God. Do not marvel that I've said this to you, that you need to be born again. Speaking of the things of God, I'm not speaking in earthly terms. And this truth, Jesus says, cannot be controlled by men. We see it in the same way that we see the wind. We know because we see it. We see the leaves rustle. We see the clouds roll. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. And so Jesus says, so too the same with the Spirit of God. You don't know where it comes. You don't know where it goes. But you see the evidence. It is unmistakable. Mysteries of God are revealed to us through the Scriptures and through the person of Jesus Christ. And from this exchange with Nicodemus, we see that it isn't enough for you and for me to commit to simply a better way of living. We need faith in Christ and to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by the Spirit to an entirely new living, not just a new way. Consider if you were to put a boat in the sea with a destination in mind and leave it to wander aimlessly, where would it go? It surely would not end up at its destination. It would be consumed by the waves or thrown against the rocks of the shore. A boat left to wander aimlessly will surely face destruction. It must be captained towards a destination. And the same is true for you and for me. You and I will not wander aimlessly towards the things of God. We will not wander towards holiness. It is not within us. We must pursue him. So number two, how do you know this morning that you're born again? You are pursuing holiness, not wandering aimlessly towards destruction. To these things, Nicodemus says, verse nine, how can these things be that all that I know and all I believe is fulfilled in you? Jesus responds to him, saying, are you, Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, and yet you don't understand this? I know, I identify with Nicodemus here, I guarantee you he's walking into this situation to confront Christ, to talk to him, and shame him for what he's done. And instead, what we see is that he 
brings shame upon himself through his ignorance. He looks at Nicodemus and, and all that he represents and says, to this point, you and these experts have failed to recognize all of these things that you teach are fulfilled in me. So Jesus drawing to an end of the discussion with Nicodemus finishes with this declaration of salvation coming up. Now, you and I know it's 2023. We've, we've had the Bible for some time. We come, we gather, we read. We know who it is that he encounters in this conversation. Nicodemus has stood face to face with the Son of God, with the light of men. And it is he who exclaims to Nicodemus, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen. But you didn't receive our testimony If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe when I tell you heavenly things? For no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now this is an authority, surely, that can only come from the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Everything Jesus says is tied to the Father. But pay close attention to what he says in verse 13 and the way he describes himself. He says, the Son of Man. Now, Jesus uses this to identify himself with those he came to save. It's a personal favorite of his. It's used 78 times throughout the Gospels to reference Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, he asks his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Again, Jesus is speaking subtly and explicitly. Nicodemus would have heard these words, and he would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. The Son of Man, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, is the phrase used to identify, prophesy the coming Messiah. And Daniel says, I've seen in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This declaration from Jesus is one that must be dealt with by Nicodemus and by you and me. Because in this moment, He is either exactly who he says he is, or he is a liar. Jesus is exclaiming to him, no one can tell you about the Father but me. A truth that has already been revealed in John 1, 17 and 18, which says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known to us. This is a master class in the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And it's been building to this crescendo in verse 14 and 15 where he says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
And Nicodemus surely would have been taken back to Numbers 21. Numbers 21, where we find Moses leading the second generation of Israelites through the wilderness, and they're approaching Canaan. Now, Canaan is the land that God had promised to their fathers. And they come upon a land called Edom. And when they arrive there, they're seeking passage. And the Edomites come, and they say, if you come, we will meet you with sword. So they regroup, and they go back, and they say, look, we're just going to go right down the main road. We won't go here or there. Just let us go right through. You can watch us the whole way. To which the Edomites came with sword. And they retreated. Yet again, we find a cowardly people of God running away from the promises of God and grumbling about God himself. As they walk away, they grumble about the leadership of God, the leadership of Moses. They wish themselves slaves. And they complain that there's nothing to eat and nothing to drink, but this manna, and this manna is worthless. We loathe it. But God says, if you hate your life, here's some death. It is true that a heart bent towards rebellion will always grumble about the things of God until God has made them new. And so God sends serpents into their midst, poisonous snakes, and they bite the Israelites, and they kill a lot of them, and they are repentant. Moses, please go tell God, we are sorry that we have sinned against him. Please remove these snakes from us, but God doesn't. He keeps the reality of death but he offers a means for life. He tells Moses, fashion for yourself a bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten upon looking upon it will be saved, but anyone who does not will face death. Now, if you're new to Scripture, Genesis 3, the serpent is introduced to us as the symbol of evil, and he stays that way through the majority of Scripture. But right here in Numbers 21, God does something miraculous with this symbol of evil. You see, bronze is a metal that symbolized judgment because it's made by fire. And so God literally tells Moses, hold their wickedness that has been judged by me up in their midst. And if they will look at my judgment, they will be saved. There's no mistake that Jesus refers to himself as this serpent. We go to a verse that Paul writes to the church in Corinthians in verse five, or chapter five, verse 21, and it says this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross became sin that was judged by God and if you and I would gaze upon him, we would be spared. But for those who do not, they will continue to face death. See, God has not removed, in the same way he didn't remove the reality of death from the Israelites, he doesn't remove the reality of death from us. He doesn't remove the reality of sin and brokenness, this world that we live in. All of these things we constantly deal with, but what he does is he offers a means for life. 
and for hope in the midst of that chaos. And he does so in the person of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ on the cross is offered to all, but it is only effectual for those who believe. I want you to hear me say that again. It is offered to all, but it is only effectual for those who would gaze upon Christ, recognize their sin, and believe. Last thing I want to tell you this morning is this. How is it that we can know we are born again? We are spirit-filled, not practicing faithless religion. We are pursuing holiness, not wandering aimlessly towards destruction. And number three, we are gazing upon Christ, not the things of the world. As the worship team comes back, you know, this morning you may have spent in a, in a lifetime Believing old wives' tales, believing fiction, convinced that there's enough within you that if you can just do enough good that you can see the kingdom of God, that you can be saved. But what we see from Jesus reflected in this passage is there is no hope for us apart from him. We are hopeless and helpless apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Anything else will leave us bleeding out. So this morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, I would love to speak with you about what that looks like before you leave here today. But may we cast aside every weight that entangles us if you're a believer today. May we cease to wander aimlessly. You will not drift towards holiness. May we pursue Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith by gazing upon him, acknowledging our sin, and believing. It is that profound, it is that simple, and it is that sweet. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your word, the promise of your love. God, for the way that you meet us where we are, that you love us enough not to let us stay there. God, help us to gaze upon you and to forsake the things of the world. God, may we pursue you. And may we live a spirit-empowered life and not continue in faithless practice. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Stand.